0: Hello and welcome to the latest employment law podcast from the stevenson Harwood employment team. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the whole series on iTunes, Stitcher and Soundcloud or by visiting our website at www.shlegal.com. My name is Beth Hale and I'm a senior associate in the team. I have with me Parvis Ghani, an employment partner. And today we're going to look back at the key employment law developments in 2017 and run through what we have to look forward to in 2018. So 2017 has been a big year for employment law. Barely a week has gone by without some employment law story hitting the headlines. In terms of important legislative changes, we've seen the introduction of the government's new tax-free childcare scheme, the commencement of the Trade Union Act 2016, which makes it significantly harder for workers to call strike action, and commencement of the gender pay gap regulations, under which employers will have to report by the 4th of April next year. Also this year, as if we could forget, the government has triggered Article 50 of the Lisbon Treaty to commence the formal process of the UK leaving the EU. It's not yet clear what impact this will have on employment rights, but Brexit is certainly occupying a huge amount of legislative attention, which makes it less likely that other changes will be pushed through any time soon. Parvis, could you run us through some of the key highlights from the cases in 2017?
1: Thanks, Beth. Yes, it's certainly been a big year for employment law, and uh, I would say probably the biggest development this year has been on tribunal fees. So um, you remember that Unison challenged the government on the introduction of tribunal fees, and that worked its way all the way up to the Supreme Court in July And to most people's surprise, they ruled that the employment tribunal fees regime was unlawful. So fees for bringing claims in the employment tribunal were introduced in 2013 and have had led to a reduction in claims of around 80%. The judgment had immediate and retrospective effects, so fees already paid are now being reimbursed and no further fees can be charged under the old regime. Now anecdotal evidence suggests that there has been an immediate increase in the number of claims, but it remains to be seen whether this is partly as a result of those who felt impeded from bringing a claim due to the fees regime, bringing claims which would otherwise be out of time and therefore whether such increase will be sustained. In terms of the second key development, I would identify the area of employment and worker status. Uh, So this has been a big area this year. We've had the Taylor Review of Modern Working Practices that was published in July and uh, it recommended, amongst other things, that the government introduce legislation to bring more clarity for both businesses and workers about who is self-employed, who is a worker and who is an employee, as well as what rights attach to each of those statuses. So the need for such clarity was emphasised by a number of cases that took place this year, largely coming out of the so-called gig economy, about exactly that point. So we had the Pimlico Plumbers case, which went to the Court of Appeal, and that held that a plumber, Mr Smith, was a worker rather than self-employed. There are a number of reasons for their conclusion, but two key considerations were the fact that Mr Smith was required to provide services personally and the presence of restrictive covenants in his contract. We had the City Sprint and Uber cases, which were brought by the cyclists and drivers respectively, and they were held to have been workers by the Employment Tribunal and the Employment Appeals Tribunal respectively again with a focus on the personal service requirement. Uber have appealed the decision, and the case will be heard by the Court of Appeal during 2018. A different conclusion was reached in the recent Deliveroo case before the Central Arbitration Committee, and that held that because they had a right to use a substitute, which was found to be genuine, the Deliveroo riders were not workers. Now, I would say the key takeaway from these cases is that it's important to get your documentation right, but even more important that your documentation reflects the reality on the ground. If it does not, then I'm afraid you've got an uphill battle and the tribunals will most likely rule that the individual concerned will either be a worker or an employee.
0: Thanks, Parvis. Well, as well as fees and employment status, whistleblowing has been, I would say, the third major feature of the year, with the Court of Appeal giving its judgment in Chesterton's and Nur Mohammed in July, and the case gave us some guidance, but sadly not total clarity, about what will constitute public interest for the purposes of gaining whistleblower protection. It seems clear that an issue which affects 100 people will be in the public interest, and that an issue which only affects the individual bringing the claim will not. Exactly where the line will be drawn between those two numbers will depend on the specific facts of each case. As we suggested in our August podcast, employers should always err on the side of caution here and assume that the public interest test is satisfied if an individual raises concerns which go any way beyond his own personal situation and employers would be well advised to tread particularly carefully in those circumstances. So fourthly, there have been further developments in relation to holiday pay. In Dudley Metropolitan Borough Council and Willits, the EAT held that voluntary overtime must be included in holiday pay calculations. Employers now have to assume that any payment which a worker receives on a regular basis must be included in all holiday pay calculations. The question in each case will be what regular means, which will be a matter of fact in each case. In addition, in a case which looked at worker status and holiday pay together, the ECJ held recently, in King and Sash windows, that an individual who had been wrongly classified as self-employed and therefore had not taken leave over a period of 13 years was entitled to the full backdated holiday pay for that period – businesses who use self-employed contractors should be prepared for more claims in this area and potential significant liability. So Parvis, what would you say are the other key cases from this year?
1: Well Beth, I'd pick two more cases to add to the list. The first one is Egon, Zender and Tillman, which we discussed in our November podcast uh, and this considered the enforceability of post-termination restrictive covenants. Again, I think the key takeaway was is to get your drafting right to ensure that you keep your covenants up to date as an employee is promoted within the organisation. My key takeaway point from this case is that to look at your covenants and to split out each separate obligation within a covenant into separate paragraphs. And this will maximise your chances of enforceability. Egon Zender is quite a technical case, and I would definitely recommend listening to our November podcast, which discusses this in more detail. The other case, which I think raises some important points, is the case of Agareo and the London Borough of Lambeth, which I, I think raises some important points on suspension. Now, we touched on this in our November podcast, and this case provides a useful reminder that suspension of an employee is not a neutral act and should only be used as a last resort rather than a knee-jerk reaction to any alleged wrongdoing. If it is a knee-jerk reaction and not well thought through, uh, without a detailed justification, then as an employer, you're likely to be in breach of contract. So, those were the key things to remember from 2017. Beth, what would you see as the key developments to look out for in 2018?
0: Well, there are a number of these to to think about. Firstly, on gender pay, which I've already mentioned briefly. The 4th of April 2018 is the deadline for employers of 250 or more employees to submit their gender pay gap report. The obligation, just as a brief reminder, is to publish the mean and median pay gap, the mean and median bonus gap, the percentage of employees who received a bonus, and the percentage of men and women in four different pay quartiles. Now, several employers have already published their reports on the government website, and most of these have included a narrative explaining the figures and giving details of their plans to reduce the gap going forward. And we would certainly recommend including an explanatory narrative. And don't forget, do start preparing if you haven't done so already. Secondly, April will also see the introduction of changes to the way in which termination payments are taxed. Essentially, the distinction between contractual and non-contractual payments in lieu of notice will be abolished, and all payments in respect of notice will be fully taxed irrespective of the contractual position. The £30,000 tax exemption on termination payments will still apply to redundancy and other genuine termination payments, but it will no longer be possible to structure payments in lieu of notice in order to take advantage of that £30,000 exemption. In relation to those changes to taxation, the government is also proposing to charge employers national insurance contributions on termination payments over £30,000, which are currently payable free of both employers' and employees' national insurance contributions. But the government have now confirmed that this change to national insurance contributions won't come into force until April 2019, so no change to that in 2018. Thirdly, the hotly anticipated EU General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, which we also did a podcast on earlier this year, comes into force on the 25th of May 2018. The GDPR imposes significant additional obligations for employers who are processing data and, more importantly, perhaps significantly bigger fines for those who don't comply.
1: Well, I think there are a couple of other key developments coming up in 2018. If I could just add to that list, you have the extension of the senior managers and certification regime to the financial services sector. So just as a reminder, that regime is currently in force for banks, building societies, credit unions and PRA-designated investment firms. But we anticipate by the end of next year, so 2018, that will be extended to all authorised firms by the FCA. The date of this change hasn't been finalised, but it is likely to be the end of 2018, and those institutions who are not currently covered by the regime should certainly start to prepare for that now. The other development, uh, if I could add, is the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy is due to carry out a review in 2018 of the shared parental leave regulations and the parental leave regulations. Neither review is likely to give rise to significant changes, but we can expect the department to consider why The uptake of shared parental leave has not been nearly as high as some had hoped when it was introduced back in April 2015. Finally, I think there's likely to be more focus on employment status and the gig economy. We're going to have a formal government response to the Taylor report, or certainly that's expected, and the Pimlico plumbers and Uber appeals are due to be heard, and a government consultation is also taking place on IR35, personal services companies and employment status in the private sector. This is an area for businesses to watch and prepare for because businesses that use contractors should be carrying out initial assessments of their arrangements and their contractual documentation. The potential changes to the IR35 regime in particular could be potentially huge and may impact on how contractor-heavy businesses operate.
0: Thanks, Parvis. There will, of course, be a few surprises in store as well as the anticipated changes, and we'll keep you up to date via our regular podcasts and e-alerts. Don't forget that you can listen again and subscribe to the series on iTunes, Stitcher or SoundCloud or on the Stevenson Harwood website. Thanks for listening. Best wishes for the rest of 2017 and a happy new year.
1: Thanks, Beth.